and welcome to the Last Minute Romaniacs Night Before the Elections edition. Like a student who's wasted the entire year on Call of Duty and Deliveroo, we're frantically cramming and trying to understand what's going to happen. With luck, you'll be hearing this late on Wednesday night or early Thursday morning so we can give you last-minute guidance on who to vote for. If not, well, it's too late now. I'm Ros Taylor. <laughs> I'm Ros Taylor and I've got two of our regulars here. Nina Schick writes and broadcasts on politics, Brexit and disinformation for Bloomberg, Sky and the BBC. And she's the one who coined the new name for post-Brexit Britain, Reverse Turkey. Always leaving, never quite managing it. <laughs> Hi, Nina. Hi. If we get another vote, will it be Reverse Turkey voting for Reverse Christmas? I think once we're reverse turkey, we might be, you know, heading into dark places. So maybe we'll have a vote on whether or not to bring capital punishment back. That seems like the kind of thing reverse turkey would want to vote on. <laughs> yeah, It's been a big week for unorthodox party funding. We'll talk about the Brexit party and PayPal later. But this week, the Austrian far-right populist party, FBO, got busted for planning to accept Russian dark money. What happened there? Well, this was a sting and the uh, the leader of the uh, FPO, the actually vice chancellor of Austria, got busted in a villa in Ibiza, willing to accept money from who we thought was a Russian oligarch billionaire. Now, fine, this was a sting and it was investigative journalism at its finest. Um, but this party has been accepting money from Russia pretty openly for the last, you know, five or six, well, decade. They have a five-year cooperation agreement with the leading party in Russia where they get money. So it's not unsurprising, really. Um, there is Russian money all over this party. So it's what you might call confidence and supply, but it's even more corrupt than our version. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, who is basking in the glow of a successful Romaniacs Live in London last night. Hello, Ian. Hello. How was the live show? Apparently there was a power cut and you had to go totally unplugged. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, it was quite... It, the, power, the power cut was actually great. Apparently it was all of Leicester Square or something, but it was really nice because as soon as it happened, we had to put our chairs to sort of the front of the stage and the whole sort of atmosphere sort of changed because suddenly people were just talking whenever they felt like and shouting questions and making jokes. And you're like, wow, as soon as the technology fails, it becomes this sort of joint endeavour. So actually, to be honest, the half where the power had gone was probably my favourite half. Hmm. Doreen got the audience to indicate their voting preferences by cheering. How did that go? Well, it was extremely scientific. Um, and we can confirm now the way that the European election is <laughs> going to work out. It's going to be a landslide for the Lib Dems and no one's going to vote for Labour or the Brexit party. You'd never have guessed. Ah, oh, interesting. Mm. Um, apparently, you made a powerful case for Prime Minister Boris Johnson being good for Remain. Why? <laughs> That's, uh, frankly, a, a very cynical misquote from a script oh, I'm, where I'm our producer forced me to make that case. <laughs> and is now presenting it as a fait accompli. Some kind of dirty bullshit that's going down there. And I think I did a very valiant job of making that proposition vaguely, you know, sort of convincing. Mm, good. We have to mention Milkshake Week. Uh, even the word mm. of the week was Milkflake. Which sounds like some kind of very soggy cornflakes, isn't it? What do you say when people claim this is political violence and don't complain if someone attacks Rainers? Do, do, they, do, I mean, do they have a point as to all, though? I don't think it's... First of all, I think we need to be clear about the things that we are discussing. I've never seen so many pearls clutched with, with such strength and so broadly. Let's be clear. If you assault someone, it's not okay. If someone feels intimidated by the things that you are doing to the point where they will not be able to make their political statement, whether it's at a protest or a speech, that's not OK. That is a separate thing to the tradition of 
humiliation and disdain as expressed by throwing shit at politicians. Now, that is, you know, was rotten fruit. It was, you know, ink, I think, for Edward Heath. It was eggs for pretty much almost every prominent member of the Labour Party at some point. Last Corbyn, I mean, Miliband before that, John, John Prescott. It's not as if this is suddenly, you know, everyone being like, oh my God, what has happened to our discourse on the face of these things? Nothing has happened. This is basically on the soft end. And this rather cynical attempt to sort of try and pretend that that is a form of actual assault or violence, or at its very worst, people to mention it even in the same fucking sentence as Joe Cox, how dare they? And that actually comes from a strategy. It is the strategy that is used by the Brexit Party sort of campaigners and, and sort of the alt-right, I'd say, as a whole, which is this sort of game of the ratio of sensitivity. When it comes to anything directed against them, the demand is that they have to be extremely sensitive about the manner in which it is done. If you ask them tough questions on Andrew Marr, that is the establishment clamping down. If you were to have an investigation by an electoral commission, that is an act of conspiracy. If you throw a milk, so anything you do is not tolerable. But in terms of what they can fucking do, they get to do whatever the hell they damn well please. Nigel Farage goes around talking about how he's going to pick up his rifle. He plays this extraordinary game of acting as if he's warning about violence while actually encouraging it, which is then almost instantly reflected by the treatment predominantly towards women outside of Parliament by extremely aggressive men who are clearly trying to stop their right of free speech. So this whole game that I think a lot of liberals have bought into of, oh, how terrible he had a milkshake thrown on him, I've just found utterly baffling from the start. It's a very exciting week, especially for Trade Nerdian, because our special guest is Dmitry Grozovinsky, former Australian trade negotiator at the WTO and founder of ExplainTrade.com, which does what it says on the tin. It explains negotiations and trade policy. Liam Fox, please add to your bookmarks. <laughs> Dmitry is the man who told Marshall Plan fantasist uh, Daniel Korczynski MP that the EU is being very ungrateful. Given the UK defeated the Nazis at Stalingrad, the Persians at Thermopylae and Saruman, as hell's deep. <laughs> Hello, Dimitri, and welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you. And let me say, I have never received more pushback than on that Thermopylae comment because, like, the Persians won, but I didn't think that was the point of my tweet. But people were very, very passionate about it. Yeah. Um, you got the Persian there, it's angry. Absolutely. I got the, the everybody cracked open their copy of the 300 comic and started waving it in my face. <laughs> He killed the giant, but they still lost. <laughs> we don't hear much about trade anymore from the Brexiters, do we? Why, why is that? So, I mean, this is the thing. You do and you don't. Um, so what, what this effect drives me mental, so at some point I will begin melting this microphone with yes. sheer frustration. <laughs> but what you get is you get they will talk about trade right up until the minute you push back in a way that they can't talk around by just blasting out vague platitudes or scientific terms. At that point, they will take half a step back and say, listen, the referendum wasn't about trade, which, look, I mean, people voted leave and remain for all sorts of different things. I've been very clear since I got into this hellscape that I never <laughs> pass judgment on anything outside of my lane. I'm not a UK citizen, I'm not even an EU citizen. I'm not an EU resident. I'm essentially an alien sent from Alpha Centauri to be baffled by your political process. Um, and so, and so they, they kind of, that, that is kind of fair enough, but it always begs the question, if it's not about trade, why are you constantly on TV lying about the trade mm. elements of this? Mm. And again, I, without wading into the politics, it wasn't a 90-10 
referendum where you could go, yeah, okay, some wild promises were made about economics, but, you know, it was such a level. It was so close that to have people turn around and go, well, if we've been honest about the fact that from a trade perspective, this is 100% downsides and has no upsides of any kind except ones we've imagined, and it'll be hugely disruptive, the idea that that couldn't possibly have swayed enough people uh, and therefore justifies like that lying doesn't matter is insufferable. But to answer your question directly, the reason you don't hear about it is that they've gotten to this point where the fact that the referendum happened now justifies the referendum. We no longer even discuss whether Brexit is objectively a good idea. That's not on the Brexit party's platform. Well, they don't have one. But if they did, it doesn't appear to be on it. What's on it is there was a referendum. We have to honor the vote of the people. And so the trade elements, the national security elements, the geopolitical elements, none of that matters anymore to them, to the kind of dichotomy they're placing, because what they're trying to put front and center is people voted, do you honor that or not? Mm. And so that's why you don't hear about trade. Plus, we keep making fun of them. You've just (laughs) published a very handy guide for journalists on how to interview people about trade. We will share it on social media. And in the introduction, you say the field is packed with very confident but utterly clueless chancers who prey on the technical nature of the subject matter to spout utter nonsense laden with enough impressive sounding terminology to appear credible. Did you have anybody in mind? (laughs) (laughs) Do I have anybody not in mind? (laughs) I mean, this is is kind of the, the whole Brexit trade debate in a nutshell, isn't it? Where it's inevitably somebody out there talking about Article 24 of the GATT and an interviewer sitting in front of them going, well, God, I've read that that's not right, but... I mean, I don't know the 1947 GATT down to the subparagraph, and I don't want to look silly or biased by challenging this person and getting dunked live on air. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to furrow my brow and nod thoughtfully while looking the slightest bit dubious to give me cover on the YouTube video and then move right past it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you see it over and over again. I was in an interview with the leading intellectual of the uh, pro-Brexit trade movement, Shankar Singham, we were being interviewed. Um, and We love him here. Uh, he, uh, he's uh, apparently a very personable man. He's never been anything but lovely to me. But he was out there and he was, he was asked a question, a very direct question, about what uh, cutting tariffs to zero on textiles would do to a very specific industry that the Channel 4, I think it was, had run a kind of segment on before. And he pivots to talking about trade defense and anti-dumping measures and he strings kind of these syllables together and it's all I mean what he was saying was broadly factual correct factually correct it wasn't had nothing to do with the question but it allows them to diffuse Mm -hmm. this question Mm -hmm. into the ether of well all that sounds hard and economists disagree about it uh let's just move right along Mm -hmm. so I mean no no one in particular (laughs) (laughs) we're going to return to article 24 later because i know it's a big (laughs) (laughs) we're doing it especially for you (laughs) dimitri is going to help us unpick the eu elections may's last try with the so-called wab or is it wab wab i think wab sounds better it sounds Um, sillier and therefore is more appropriate yeah absolutely and the latest in disinformation and astroturfing but first a quick message from nina We debuted our very stylish and on-trend ultra-Remainer range of mugs and t-shirts at Remaniacs Live in London last night. And we'll be making them available to existing Patreon backers and new supporters very soon too. 
Sign up to support us on Patreon and you'll get your podcast a day early, unless it's a weird emergency week like this week and many other weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, end of October. I think there'll be a big emergency. Uh, just putting that out there. Plus your choice of classic or brand new Romaniacs t-shirts and mugs and a weekly column from the panel and our monthly extra episode, Ask Romaniacs, as well. It's literally better than being a member of the Bilderberg Group with your own private chalet in Davos. <sighs> Stick that to the elite. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more or just look on our Facebook page. Also, don't forget our Marc Francois MP War Stories Writing Challenge. Send us 200 words of your finest battle action storytelling featuring the Captain Hurricane of the ERG. The best entry wins a special I've been up the jungle with Marc Francois t-shirt. <laughs> Love it. And we'll read it out to the show too. Email your entry to info at romaniacs.com with the subject line It Ain't Half Hot, Mark. Yeah. By Monday, 27th of May. Yes, we've given you an extension, just like Donald Tusk. Thanks, Nina. Okay, the deal is back, except it's not the deal anymore. It's the WAB. <laughs> On Tuesday night, <laughs> Theresa May made her big new offer in the withdrawal agreement oh. bill, and already everyone is briefing that it's definitely going to fail. Ian, what's new in the WAB? Is it definitely going to fail? Yeah, it is almost certainly going to fail. And in fact, I think it's, it's looking increasingly unlikely that we'll ever see it actually go for a vote. Mm. It's going so badly right now. Um, so what's new in it? There's the, there's two parts of that. The first part is she got all of the little promises she'd made to various people and stuck them all in there. So she did the promise, the, the Brady promise, which is, you know, the alternative things on the border, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's flying unicorns. So she chucks that in there with with this sentence of, um, and we'll have done it by the end of 2020. And then when you look at the sentence closer, it's like, we will seek to have done it by the end of 2020. You go, oh, look, seek. How funny. Maybe she's not actually going to achieve this in, in, in reality. Lisa Nandy, who's, you know, on the lib on the Labour benches, who's this sort of real reconciled to Brexit sort of figure, gets most of what she was demanding, which is a sort of commons vote, um, outlining the objectives of the future trade negotiation and having a vote on, on the outcome of it. It's pretty much international best practice, but it's a good thing to have chucked it in there. Um, and then there were a couple of new bits. Uh, the new bits were some sort of custom something. Now, we saw the four options that they'd had milling around in Labour, or what we thought they were, which was an extremely confusing collection of barely articulated ideas. There were rumours that she was going to bring back the sort of customs partnership idea. She wasn't that explicit quite yesterday. It seemed like that's what she was talking about. She said, look, we've got this customs idea. We've had it for a while. We're going to put it forward. We think it'll be great. But she wasn't quite explicit about what it entailed. Um, she is talking in the comments as we record this, by the way. So she may have been more explicit by now. The second... <laughs> She may well fucking not have been. Um, and the second part then was the people's vote stuff. And the people's vote stuff, it's this classic sort of thing where she's like, brrrm, says the word that you want to hear, brrrm. And then when you look at what the brrrm involves, you're like, it falls apart in your hands. And, and in this case, it was, you know, on the bill, I will put for us to have a vote on whether we have a referendum, at, you know, later. So you're not, the bill does not enact a referendum. It's not a confirmatory, you know, measure, anything like that. It is basically just saying, if you do this, well, you might then be able to have a vote later. Now, of course, it's worth remembering, anyone can put down amendments, a committee stage, on a bill. So the government isn't saying it's going to do this thing. Any MP can just put forward an amendment. This is where well, we want to have a fucking referendum. So she hasn't given them anything that they don't already have. It's like offering me more fingers. You know, I have many things in the world that I want, but I don't need any more fucking fingers. 
Uh, I mean, I could both be fine used to them if I really is. <laughs> but I like, you know, there's no, it's just completely mean. So that's basically what she gave. And it's a classic strategic error she always makes. She gives just a teeny bit over here, but not enough to get people on side, but more so that so she loses people from the other side because they're so alienated and irritated by what she's done. Amazing. Yeah, because I thought Labour's position on a second referendum was, uh, shall we say, nuanced. But, you know, this, this takes it to a whole new level of nuance, I feel. And in many ways, it seems to me that she's learning from, from Jeremy Corbyn. And who knows, maybe that's a good thing. Um, Nina, she's also pledged a commitment to workers and environmental protection. Um, why would anyone trust that when her successor, oh God, it might be Boris Johnson, can rip it up? Yeah, I mean, why would anyone trust that when her potential successors have literally said they would rip it up? I mean, like they, you know, potential conservative PMs have talked about this already. And so it's meaningless. Um, in fact, her entire statement yesterday was meaningless. I didn't even follow it to the extent that Ian didn't because I already, well, we all already knew what the top line would be. She's going to make this appeal it's going to go down badly and we are essentially in the same position we have been since we finished the negotiations with the EU in November last year. Dimitri, if the sticking point is a formal customs union that the Tory right won't accept, are we ever going to see solid proposals that they will accept or is it just no point now in trying to feed the beast? Well, it's just kind of unclear what Tories or the hard right Tories want out of this. Because if their position is we want absolute full control over UK trade policy forever, um, then in addition to not being clear how they ever plan to sign free trade agreements, which are all about binding your control over elements of your trade policy, um, a, a customs union doesn't do that, but is fundamentally irreconcilable with what I think Labour is trying to do, which is to maintain um, kind of as close as they can possibly get it to frictionless tariff-free goods trade with the continent. Um, I think the the bigger issue than can they find the votes for it is it's just not that good an idea. Mm. Um, I mean, both of what they're looking at is just not great ideas from a trade perspective. So there really is nothing, if there's nothing she can do to keep the ERG on board. There isn't even the smallest chance that a few of them will come over and that enough Labour MPs will come over that she might push it through? Or do we are we thinking that that will be, that's out of the question here? The ERG seems to be going the exact other way. They're yeah. sort of, they're fleeing. Um, I don't see any movement from Labour guys. I didn't see any movement from, you know, people's vote, Labour types. In fact, people's vote put out an email shortly afterwards going point by point reputation. You know, you're not going anywhere here. I don't see anything from the sort of Brexit reconciled Labour I also think that, that there's a stage here now where it, 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 even if it was a better proposition than it is, I'm not sure it can work by virtue of it being her putting it forwards. Mm -hmm. And that's really where you just think, you know, even though, and look, I have my sort of stasis instinct of just thinking constantly the end result of whichever political week it is will be the most boring possible thing that could happen, which is why she keeps on surviving and going. <laughs> but actually there has to be an end point to that. And it, Today, this week, it started to feel like that like, this must be endgame now. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's the loyalist, the traditional male loyalist Tory party is starting to, there's whispers there. I think it's probably a nonsense thing to say, but it's, I think it's 50-50 whether she's prime minister by the time that we next record an episode. Wow. So assuming Boris Johnson takes over and it looks more and more likely he will, are we just going to slide along to no deal? Or is he going to turn everything around and through sheer force of will and personality and general Britishness bring us <laughs> to, to a deal that 
simultaneously satisfies the ERG, the Labour Party, the EU and uh, anybody else. (laughs) As a negotiator, that's exactly how it always works. Uh, (laughs) There seems to be irreconcilable red lines and then somebody with a degree from Oxbridge (laughs) and the kind of accent you automatically defers into the room comes in, snaps an infinity gauntlet (laughs) and the reality just reshapes around their toughness. Uh, It's well recorded. It's why the US-China trade war is going so well because, I mean, Trump just through sheer art of the deal and toughness is just pushing it through. You guys are, I don't know what you guys are worried about. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to those European elections. Voting opens tomorrow, Thursday, 21st of May. Don't know about you, but I'm excited. I'm always excited, even when it's going to be dreadful uh, because I just love elections. We did... (laughs) Sorry, Ian. I get all excited when I see the card and, you know. Um, We did a surprise Hustings podcast last week with the key national Remain parties. We had some feedback from listeners saying, why did you have Labour on? Uh, They're not a Remain party. Do you think they had a point, Ian? We can say that. I mean, Labour is appealing for Remain votes in a way the Brexit, well, I suppose the Brexit, Nigel Farage pays lip service to it, but, you know, there's nothing there. And the Conservatives are not. Um, There is an argument about what Labour's policy is exactly. And I, you know, I, I don't agree with this idea of its policy is Brexit. I know, obviously, objectively, literally, its policy is Brexit. But the reality is that Labour doesn't exist as a unified organisation. So mm. its policy at any one time is a sort of artificial timestamp of wherever the internal struggle is. And the internal struggle has lots of remainers in it. You know, then you've got the candidates. For loads of remainers in lots of seats, you're going to sit there thinking, well, who, you know, who is it exactly that I want? If it's going to be the Brexit guy, or it's going to be Eloise Todd, or Andrew Adonis. So you're going to be like, well, I'm probably going to vote Labour if that's what the thing comes down to. So although that's not my intention, and although that's not actually technically really what I think people should be doing, I do think Labour needs to be taught a lesson in this mm-hmm. election. Nevertheless, there are a lot of people who are very credible, who I hugely admire, who do think that. And it'd be crazy, I think, not to include them in the discussion. And they have to be able to stand up and say why it is that Remainers should vote for them, despite you know, their leader and where their policy is right now. The Brexiters have lots of people that are Brexit at any cost. Remainers have a lot of people that are Remain but... Here are my other loyalties. Here are the other concerns that I need. That was playing on, because the two things had happened quite close together, that was playing on my mind when that exchange took place. Except, I mean, this is like if the Titanic had hit the iceberg and they were running an election for captain and one of the candidates refused to take a position on lifeboats because they were really passionate (laughs) about what the band plays. I was like, I I feel your passion for the band. I too am sick of swing classics. But we're thinking you need to make a decision about whether it's women and children first or trade experts. And I have a strong view. (laughs) The most recent polling from YouGov puts the Brexit party on 37%, the Lib Dem second on 19%, Labour third on 13%, and the Conservatives fifth at 7% below the Greens. Mm. What should Remainers be saying on Monday when the results come out and Nigel Farage is crowing all over the place? So I don't think you should be disheartened if the Brexit party comes first, because they likely will. Um, We all know that Farage is a bit of a, you know, it's the cult of Farage. So the fact that he's founded this new self-promotion vehicle. Um, Look at it in the historical context, how UKIP did in 2014. They got 27% of the vote. And I think that, you know, they'll get a few points more this time around, but it is broadly in line with how he has performed in the past, maybe a bit better. That isn't enough to 
be this revolution that he's claiming is happening in middle in England, like gardens and pubs across middle England right now. Um, the second point to make is that I hope that it sends a message to both Labour, as we've discussed um, in depth on this podcast. And I think it'll send a message to the Conservatives as well. Admittedly, it'll be the wrong message that they take from, you know, the wreckage. Um, they'll take that as, an, you know, a, a signal for them to out Farage Farage. So why they have to become more no dealy, they have to amp up the rhetoric on no deal. And the next prime minister is going to be uh, really ferocious on his no deal rhetoric. Whilst I believe, um, so let's say we have a new pr prime minister, PM, uh, Boris or Rob, I don't think they actually want to trigger no deal, right? So they're just going to amp up the rhetoric whilst hoping that parliament in the end will save them from not having to go there. Um, but if that happens, then the chances of, you know, reverse Turkey or potentially even remain increased maybe in the long run. We're still in the same sort of boat with with most of the figures. I mean, there's two ways of splitting it on Remain Libra. One of them is you just get rid of Labour and the Tories altogether and just say, we don't know what these votes mean because they don't fucking know what the fuck they're talking about. So let's just ignore them. And we'll yeah. talk about Brexit. On one time, the Lib Dems, the Greens, Plaid, SNP, Change UK. Um, and on that basis, you get, I mean, for Comres and NewGov, you get they're pretty much neck and neck. The Remain parties versus Brexit party for Opinion, which is a pollster's name that I just despise saying. I wish they would call it. So just call it fucking Opinion rather than this. this anyway, that, that would give Brexit a seven point lead, according to, to theirs. However, an interesting thing happens, because if we were to have another referendum, the actual thing of excluding the Tories and Labour doesn't actually really work. The truth is those guys would be voting. So if you put them in and you treat all the Conservative voters as um, as Brexiters and all the Labour voters as Remainers, which is not quite true, it's probably about one in four Labour voters wouldn't, but that's how I know that, but it's generally sort of true. The picture changes quite a bit. So then Opinium puts them neck and neck. YouGov gives a five-point lead to Remain um, and Comres gives a massive 13-point lead to Remain. Now, I know that this is digging down to try and find a diamond in the rough of the... I, I get that. But nevertheless, in terms of the... It's very easy to sit watching TV and just start by osmosis to take on this idea that the country is just biting at the bit, you know, for Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. But in, the truth is, in the country, nothing has changed yeah. in this situation. What has happened is that we have seen the sheer extent of Remainers' political leaders' inability to work together and to construct an emotionally articulate, effective message. And we have seen just how good they are at it. So on the next morning, the thing you should be asking yourself is, what is it that we can do, if there is a second referendum, to stop that shit from replaying? Mm -hmm. Speaking of the Conservatives, which you, you were doing, Nina, all the talk is about defecting Tory voters centred on Brexit betrayal. But John Harris wrote an interesting thing about disaffected Tory Remainers in The Guardian this week. And he said, it feels to me as if something is afoot akin to the mast waking up to the state of the country that happened in 1997. Only this time, there is no universally popular political force that can mop up all the anxiety as Tony Blair's Labour Party did. And we have seen, you know, we've seen a bit of a fight back from Tory Remainers this week with Michael Heseltine standing up again. And then um, Matthew Paris said that he would vote Lib Dem and he thought that any Tory Remainer should vote Lib Dem. And does, is John Harris right? Are there really that many of these people, do you think, out there? I think there are many. Uh, I think, um, was it the words of one cabinet minister recently where he said, if you go anywhere where, you know, a, a, vo a potential voter has books on their shelves and they're not going to they're not going to be voting for us. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do think the Conservatives will pivot more towards the Brexit Party. Um, and I think that this is 
a mistake that labor is making as well, right? So the, the conventional wisdom that it's working class labor who like really support the Brexit vote and therefore they they can't uh, become more of a party of Remainers. I think the data shows that that is factually incorrect. It's actually kind of the upper and middle class kind of Tory voters who are more Brexity than the lower kind of working classes. Um, and it's just to follow on the point of what Ian just said, you know, there's I don't think the country has seismically changed when it comes to public opinion on Brexit. If anything, we're split right down the middle. And the question is, how do you mop up the Remain vote in a in a coherent and successful way? And these elections are very much going to be a demonstration of the fact that that doesn't currently exist. Boris Johnson pivoted a little bit to not quite Remainers, but certainly the less extreme wing of the Tory party um, this week. There seemed to be a feeling, well, there was a feeling that um, Amber Rudd in particular might be falling into line behind him, you know, almost almost as if they were accepting the inevitable and just trying to change his mind um, rather than anything else. But you, you're not... Um, you're not convinced that Boris would ne- definitely go for no deal, are you? I'm not convinced of that. I mean, Boris is ultimately out for himself. And if, despite all the bravado of, you know, we can stomach an deal Brexit and then the EU will come back negotiating to us. I mean, Dimitri is... Uh, <laughs> his eyes! <laughs> Once we're on fire, they'll be at our mercy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's amazing how cavalier politicians are about this. And they're like, oh, they're fine. But I think the realities of what actually happens if we go into no-deal Brexit territory. And Boris Johnson and the other cabinet ministers will have been briefed on this extensively, not only by the Treasury, but also in terms of like national security. You know, it could be an utter disaster. I mean, I'd love to, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think he would really be willing to take us there because I think then... That is the Conservative Party finished. And he he will be finished after that. We go into such uncharted political territory. It's very difficult to see how PM Boris, who takes us over the cliff into no-deal Brexit, uh, emerges victorious as this Churchillian candidate that he's always imagined himself to be. What do you think would happen in the event of a no-deal? Oh, look, I mean, obviously your GDP would increase by about 12% yeah. instantly. <laughs> um, I've got a Patrick Minford article about it, and he seems very confident. Um, no, I think, like, let's focus on the negotiations with the EU, because I think that's a really important question. Right now, the biggest advantage the UK actually has in negotiations with the EU is that the EU has a preference for a smooth off-ramp. The UK and EU are traveling on a bus on a highway. The UK has decided to get off this highway. And the EU wants to minimize the disruption to themselves and their businesses when that happens. If uh, And so there is an inclination. Anything that they're negotiating is detracting from a status quo. There is a way things work now. There is a way things will work in the future. That way will be more limited. And so you're kind of pulling away from something that exists. Once you go over the cliff edge and the EU is under trade law and just what they will do is revert you back to WTO rules and take away that status quo, the negotiations begin not from a place of where you guys are today, but where you will be on that day, which is bloody nowhere. <laughs> so there's all of these assumptions of it like, well, <laughs> we'll do, yeah, we'll do this FTA and we'll immediately, well, of course, we'll get tariff, complete tariff-free access. If I'm an EU negotiator and I'm sitting across that table, I'm going, why? It's one thing to continue existing arrangements and roll them smoothly from one thing to another. Nothing's changed. 
But if you yank that steering wheel left, crash off the little railing on the highway and go plummeting into the undergrowth, the idea that they will just begin negotiations as if you're still cruising along by their side is very optimistic. Just uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, uh, people keep inviting me for meetings and they leave more depressed than when they sat down. I swear I'm a fun person. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in the room just laughed for the listeners at home. Um, and a single tear is rolling slowly down my cheek. Um, but as to what will happen in no I think if you look at Theresa May's plot armor, and it's very hard to describe, like if she was a character on like Game of Thrones and had survived as many travails as she had, you'd be like they're really moving away from George R. R. Martin's <laughs> you sneeze and you get shot in the head kind of ethos. But her armor this whole time is that none of these people, especially in the ERG, but including Boris Johnson, who's somewhere in the middle, wants to be driving this bus during a note. Nobody wants to be responsible for Brexit Day because it'll either be not as good as they promised or really, really bad. And like Ian said, you know, Ian's right to say, you know, it could be 50-50 chance on any given day. At some point that runs out. And at some point one of them goes, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice on this and hope hope I've built up enough reasons to blame her that mm-hmm. I can survive being the one at the wheel. Before we move on, let's go back to the Brexit Party's fundraising and its interesting social media behaviour for a minute. The Electoral Commission has raided, sorry, visited the party's HQ after Gordon Brown raised concerns over the legality of the party's funding. It's been receiving gifts of under the legal notification threshold of £500 via PayPal, which critics claim is fishy. Brown also said the European Parliament should look at the disclosures last week that Farage had received about £450,000 from Aaron Banks when he was supposedly skint. And earlier this week, BuzzFeed noted that the Brexit Party's Twitter behaviour is odd, to say the least, with brand new accounts pumping out high volumes of messaging about nothing but Brexit at strange hours of the day. This matters because unless you tell Twitter to only show you tweets in date order from the people you follow, it will throw Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party to the top of your feed based on the number of retweets and likes they post get. I mm. switched this week and it was just such a relief. Suddenly, Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party went away. Mm. And, yeah, it was a huge relief. And if you look at those retweets that they're making, an amazing number seem to be from accounts that want to make America great again, who arguably don't have a lot invested in Brexit. So does the Brexit party's funding look dodgy? Because lots of campaigners take PayPal on all sides of the argument. Does the Brexit party's funding look dodgy, Nina? Because lots of campaigners take PayPal. It's it's definitely dodgy. Um, and I think the European Commission is looking into it, given that the Electoral Commission doesn't have the resources or the time to look into it. Um, yeah, I, I've just got a fingerspitzgefühl that it is dodgy. I'm going to go out there and say it looks dodgy. <laughs> Russia has formed for this across Europe. And um, what sort of evidence is there of them interfering in Britain? There's loads of evidence that Russia interfered not only in Britain, but across the world. Um, we know uh, that Russia interfered heavily in the 2016 referendum. Uh, they interfered by not only by pushing. So at the time, they wouldn't have just pushed for Brexit, but they pushed for maximum confusion. Right. So you'd sow discord. Um, they fund far right parties, far left parties all across Europe. This is known and documented. It's been going on for years. And that's because um, it's not like it's a huge secret. In 2012, Vladimir Putin, you know, publicly came out and made a huge speech and said that the EU was uh, an existential threat to Russia and to his idea of a Eurasian customs union. So um, Russia has 
when Russia funds parties in Europe, again, it's important to remember that it's across the political spectrum. And they do this in many ways, either through business loans, bank loans, think tanks, um, oligarchs uh, who you meet in villas in Ibiza, et cetera, et cetera. Ian, what's the background to Farage's maintenance payments from banks? Could he be in breach of EU Parliament rules? So, OK, first of all, the European parliamentary president, um, who's a guy called Rajani, um, has sent it to this advisory committee, which is a sort of watchdog for the kind of payments that MEPs get. Are they declared? Is their transport declared to events? I don't know the details beyond that of how those rules operate. It seems that it would be on the face of it pertinent to those questions. But there may be details that have escaped me. I thought the figures in Channel 4's investigation were extraordinary. Mm. I mean, just mm. the scale. And I know this is an obvious point, but especially when you've just spent three years being called an elitist by these guys. And <laughs> it turns out that you've just been going, oh, my mate's given me 13 grand a month to live in Chelsea. And you're like, 13 grand's a fucking what now? <laughs> like, that's an extraordinary amount of money. His own driver and, and car... You know, these all these trips to the US, it's the scale of it. I was genuinely surprised by just how much money was being sent to him by Aaron Banks. Um, all of it, ostensibly, you know, it's just makes payments because I was trying to sort of a new thing. Remember, all of this is on top of his 100 and I think two uh, euro, 1,000 euro MEP salary, which I think has been slashed in half because he was breaking other rules to do with spending. Um, and he, I think he made 700 grand over the course of, I think, four years in terms of media appearances. I don't know how much he's certainly getting paid more by the fucking BBC than I am, if that's how much he's made. <laughs> or maybe he's doing more BBC work. Um, but nevertheless, so look, the guy's got a lot of money. And of course, by Channel 4 doing this thing operation, the first thing the Brexit party did was just ban them from attending their event, this classic Trump uh, sort of schoolbook thing. Yeah. And uh, I think quite a dispiriting spectacle afterwards of, of not many other media outlets showing enough solidarity and still covering the events, despite the fact that one of their colleagues had been excluded. I think they've now let um, Channel 4 back in, haven't they? And Channel 4 are very kindly going to interview Richard Tice tonight. So we're all going to looking forward to oh, that. Oh, joy. I'll get yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nina, our listeners are probably adept at this by now, but what are your tells for a dodgy propaganda account on Twitter? Is it a dog picture or a string of numerals or hashtag MAGA? Uh, yeah, <laughs> all of those. Um, but... So they, they could often tell with these accounts depending on when they were created and if they are obsessed with certain topics. Um, so those are often kind of troll accounts. I mean, maybe we would count as that as well, only tweeting about <laughs> Brexit. But, you know, when it's 21,000 tweets and an account that was basically founded just when the Brexit party launched, hmm, convenient. And all of those 21,000 tweets since then has been about pro-Brexit propaganda, then you're probably looking at a false account. They're pretty easy to set up. And for all of kind of Twitter's, um, for all of Twitter's mea culpas and saying we're cracking down on this stuff, it's actually really hard for them to do it. You know, with geolocation, you can't tell where these people are based, where are these accounts. So it's it's super, super easy to say, set up fake Twitter accounts. And I think that we all need to be aware that this exists and exists massively. You can buy them. You can buy followers. You can wait. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this kind of um, and and to I mean, if you just want to look at it from a really cynical marketing kind of angle, you know, kudos to them in some kind of awful way because they know how to position themselves as this kind of life force of British politics. Um, and all this astroturfing is definitely all the hype around the Brexit party is working in, in because of a lot of the kind of, well, just marketing ploys that they're doing that the other political parties aren't. 
We should also point out that they definitely have lots of legitimate human beings behind some of their supportive yes. accounts because I've been at the bottom of one of their pylons for the last two days and they are so magnificently fucking stupid that I can guarantee they are not a machine. <laughs> <laughs> This week's special guest is Dmitry Grozobinsky, former Australian trade negotiator and a man who has met those phantom WTO bosses that we hear so much about. <laughs> WTO bosses don't actually exist, though, do they? Well, the WTO has a director general and some deputy director generals, but they're not in charge of the rules. They're in charge of the institution. They're in charge of the secretariat. And they're certainly not in the business of expressing opinions on legal matters of kind of domestic substance inside the UK, um, that's actually the last thing from their minds. <laughs> but what is the current state of the WTO that we will be relying on when we uh, go for no deal? Uh, has Donald Trump succeeded in, in depowering it or is it still a fairly, fairly influential world organisation? I think it's certainly... Uh, an influential organization in what it's actually for, which is to maintain the status quo of the agreed rules. While the Trump administration has started diverging from them more and more, they are at least trying to rely on the rules of the organization itself, even where they are twisting them in order to do so. They're not just kind of saying up yours and going their own way. They are using legal loopholes and dubious national security findings to say, look, mm. yes, we're diverging from the spirit of the rules and the letter of the rules. And some would say the rules, but we mm. are doing so in a way that is at least consistent with our legal obligations. Um, so from that effect, I mean, is the UK joining an organization, the absolute fundamentals of which, which is to lock in tariffs at broadly agreed levels to keep trade completely falling apart? No. Um, is that going to be a really sharp drop from the world's most integrated regional trade agreement? Yes. Mm. <laughs> a huge part of the Brexit problem in Britain is that we put complex trade issues in front of an audience of ordinary voters who couldn't be expected to understand them, but now insist that they did understand them. Is there a concise way to sum up what Brexit would mean for British trade that listeners can use in the pub or over uh, Sunday lunch with their parents? One that doesn't rely on saying, you don't understand this. No, and I don't think people should be throwing you don't understand this in, in anybody's face. Um, there's frankly no reason people should understand this. It's incredibly complicated. Um, the way I tend to fall back on describing it is that picture you are trying to sell insurance or even sell a pie to someone in Venezuela from London. Imagine the paperwork requirement, imagine the costs, imagine the logistics, imagine all of the bureaucracy around that and how hard that is to navigate. The EU project on, from a trade perspective has been to chip away at that nightmare over the course of many years until it is as easy to sell all products and many, many services, far more than any free trade agreement has ever done, to somebody in Paris or Lisbon from London. Leaving the EU reverts back. It might not revert all the way back to Venezuela, if you guys can avoid no deal, though frankly the way you're going, um, <laughs> you know, buy canned goods. But whatever it is, it'll fall significantly, significantly short of that. And for the UK, that's especially problematic for, for two reasons. 
Um, so many of your businesses rely on their business models for this integration into Europe. If you go back and look at the way the UK was promoting itself as a business center like a week ago, you look at every page of the brochure and it's like, we speak English, we have a legal system that kind of makes sense, our government's pro-business before we let Boris Johnson in front of a microphone, and we are integrated into Europe on every single page. We are your doorway into Europe, we are your beachhead into Europe, 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 Europe. And you're dismantling that. And that's a huge problem. And your second problem is that you're a services economy. And you're increasingly a services economy. You might be the first major economy on earth for whom services as an export become larger than goods uh, among like major industrialized economies. That's crazy. And that's really problematic because free trade agreements and services are garbage. You never get any access. The four freedoms are so ridiculously unique and incredible to have been achieved. And everything else is so far short of that that you're going to do yourselves real damage to really the heart of your future prosperity. So, no, there's no way to explain it. <laughs> Just do a deal with China and Australia and India, right? Yeah. <laughs> That'll be easy. <laughs> Can we talk about Article 24? Just very briefly, because I, I, this magical article, <laughs> yes. this magical article of the WTO rules, is it's suddenly back on the agenda, thanks to the Brexit Party. We've mentioned this before, but can you remind our listeners what it is and why it's nonsense? Because they keep on talking about it. Sure. So Article 24 of the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade, uh, GATT to us trade nerds, you can't see it, but I'm flashing gang signs at Ian, and he's <laughs> responding for having a moment. Um, he's actually going to start crip walking up and down there. Um, is the part of trade law that lets you have free trade agreements and customs unions. Ordinarily, the whole point of the WTO was that you treat everyone the same. You treat every country, every country's goods, the same way as you do every other country. But Article 24 allows you to have... Uh, kind of exceptions to that if you have a full and comprehensive free trade agreement, like a serious one. Um, the reason uh, Brexiteers keep bringing it up is there is a provision in there that says, look, if you're on your way to a free trade agreement, like you're most of the way done, you know what it's going to look like, but you're not quite ready to implement it yet, you can come to the WTO membership and say, look, here is the free trade agreement I'm going to have. Here's my schedule for implementing it. Um, I would like to put it into place, bits of it now. So, for example, a lot of the tariff reductions now, and then we will tell you about our full free trade agreement when it's done. So they have somehow transposed that into if the UK and EU have no deal, then depending on your level of crazy as a kind of hard right Brexiteer, that even means the UK can invoke this magical article like a scroll of compel person to force the EU not to charge tariffs on UK goods. Or it means that somehow the EU will do what it has constantly and repeatedly said it won't do, which is to then go, okay, well, in that case, we instantly put in place an interim trade agreement that eliminates all tariffs. I mean, it's stupid because firstly, the EU is not going to do it. And secondly, as Trade nerds have tried to explain for now two years across every single medium except interpretive dance because, <laughs> trust me, you don't want to see that. <laughs> we do. <laughs> the tariffs are not, like, of all of your problems stemming from Brexit, and Lord knows there are a few. Um, <laughs> many of them are on my website. Um, the tariffs are a part of it, but in fact... 
they're just one component that happens to hit some industries harder than others. The the paperwork, the loss of services access, mm-hmm. all of these other things are huge and Article 24 doesn't cover them and it can't cover them. So we're a services-based economy and that's going to make things difficult under WTO rules. So what would our economy have to look like to prosper under WTO rules? How would our industrial base have to change? It's... So, so uh, in the scenario where you're, you have WTO, you've reverted back to WTO rules with Europe. Yeah, no deal happened. No deal, uh, no deal happened. And let's kind of ignore the first, say, however long it takes to, like, you know, the water stops running because it turns out that the filtration liquid required is made in a, por- in a factory in Portugal and it's stuck in a queue in Calais that runs for 16 miles. Let's kind of set that nightmare aside and say it's three years from now you've got an economy. Um Ideally, what you would want to do is then try to rebuild as much of what you have in the EU as possible um, and try to create an industrial base where it still makes sense if you are assembling a complex piece of machinery, like, say, medical equipment, um, and you want to source a bit of it from Germany and a bit of it from Portugal and then, say, assemble the whole thing in the UK. You, uh, you want to create conditions where, where you can do that. That's going to be really hard because, firstly, the EU's always going to have more frictionless trade internally than it will with a free trade agreement or a customs union partner. And secondly, they frankly don't have a lot of incentive to help you. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing you want to do is, look, London's always going to be a financial Mm -hmm. hub. It's always going to be... Um, it's always going to be a big center for financial services, legal services. The EU has every incentive to start bleeding off some of that into its own centers by making it incrementally more difficult for you to provide those services into Europe, to ensure things in Europe, to provide banking services into Europe, what have you, legal services into Europe. Um, But London, as a huge financial sector, can still thrive just to a lesser extent Mm -hmm. by continuing to offer those services to those who want to trade into the UK, which is a big economy, but also to the rest of the world. Um, So so it's not, um, I mean, this is, this is, it's, it's, I mean, this is Romaniacs, so I know I'm supposed to pretend that the island will sink into the sea. Um, The, in a way, it's a problem with the debate that we've gotten there, that we're talking about the island sinking into the sea. The issue is this is going to make things worse for the UK on every single trade measure. Mm -hmm. Um, you can still prosper, like your economy will still grow just more slowly and with a huge amount of disruption for ordinary people who frankly don't deserve it. Speaking of problems with the economy, uh, British Steel went into liquidation today, uh, partly because of a slump in orders from the EU. And Nigel Farage immediately claimed that the EU emissions trading scheme was to blame and Britain could bail out the company anyway if it weren't for EU state aid rules. Um I don't think that's quite true, but you can tell. Is there anything in, at all in that argument? I'm not an expert on British Steel or the EU emissions trading scheme. The, that's the, right, neither is he. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I would say is whether you're in the EU or not, the EU has an emissions trading scheme. And if that determined what uh, depreciated their demand for steel, I mean, this is, this is kind of, this is the whole issue behind Brexit, right? Whereas if you find EU regulations annoying, then post-Brexit, you will still have to deal with them because you're in the heart of Europe and Europe is the centre of gravity of this continent and this region. But now you will no longer be in the room to veto the most kind of out there demands of the EU. 
So if his point is, yeah, the emissions trading scheme killed British Steel, well, I don't necessarily buy that. But now the next EU emissions trading scheme, UK Steel's representatives won't even be in the room to say, hey, hey guys, do you want to maybe think about what this is going to do to our community? Is there a way we can shape this that gives us a smoother on-ramp? What are you talking about state aid rules? I, I mean, no, he's just making that up as far as I can tell. Yeah, um, I think that's the case because plenty of uh, European countries protect their companies uh, or com- companies they want to protect in that way. How likely do you think the no deal is right now? And sort of give it, can you give it a percentage? Would you like to do that or would you? Oh God, uh, I'm not in the predictions errand? business. Um, I've been getting everything wrong. Like, you want to run <laughs> directly away from my instinct. Um, uh, my concern is always, I think there's a low chance it happens on purpose, but a worryingly high chance it happens by accident. Or it happens not uh, as a hybrid of the two, where, for example, you could imagine a scenario where a future prime minister um, wants to have no deal or is okay with having no deal, but doesn't want to be the one to push the button. So what they do, uh, let's just, to pick a name, let's just call him B. Johnson, or if that's too (laughs) obvious, Boris J. Um, What they could do is, for example, when it comes to October and where the UK is inevitably asking for another extension, he could just make utterly unrealistic demands. He could, say, condition it on the EU dropping the backstop or something. The EU internally balks at that request, says no, and he can turn around to the public and say, look, I didn't want no deal, I was prepared to negotiate, but the EU didn't want to come to the table. That is my current nightmare scenario where it kind of happens without it being anybody's stated objective. Mm. By, as David Allen Green would say, by automatic application of law well. Dimitri, what's the most important aspect of the trade issue that people should take away? Shit's hard, yo. Um, (laughs) (laughs) When you guys do new Romaniacs t-shirts, if you want to do a sub-branch of trade, just print that across on, on, on both sides. You're playing with decades-long agreements that underpin aspects of the economy nobody's even thought about. There was a story a couple of months ago where one of the Brexit planning departments, and as I understand it, 90% of UK citizens are currently working for a Brexit planning department, um, (laughs) discovered that uh, the pellets that UK uh, exporters use, the the wooden boxes that they use, weren't going to be compliant with EU law anymore, and nobody could ship anything. I mean, these are the kind of things where, like, I'm a, I'm a trade expert. I'm paid to think about this stuff. It would have, it didn't occur to me. It occurred to others who work in that specialized area. It's literally like you've got the finest Swiss watch and you're just chucking rocks at its mechanism um, without knowing what's going to happen next. So the, the biggest thing to understand is, firstly, there are no easy answers to this. None of this stuff is magic. Um, and as a general rule, the fundamental principle of trade negotiations integration is that you want to be integrating to make things together. That is why NAFTA exists. That is why the uh, African Continental Free Trade Area exists. That is why Mercosur exists, why the EU exists. If you think of the, the comparison I always use is if you think about the economic strength of the US, why are they so powerful economically? There's a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that you can combine New York capital with California IT with manufacturing in the Midwest, and you can pull all of those and you can create products that are able to draw on all of those sources of comparative advantage and compete globally in a way that, say, Wyoming by itself couldn't, or even California by itself would struggle to. 
Um, that that massive strength is an asset. The EU does that by merging, you know, UK know-how with Portuguese uh, Portuguese know-how with German manufacturing techniques. Moving away from that runs directly contrary to everything we have learned about what you can do with trade policy to make people's to make countries more prosperous and to create better jobs. That is the fundamental issue. Um, there is no getting around that fact. That's brilliant. Thank you. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was, that's Dimitri for PM. Consummate. Yeah. Of what? <laughs> <laughs> of the rubble. <laughs> the rubble. The end of the show is here, and that means something else for the Brexit time capsule. Dimitri Grozabinski, what's going into our blast-proof chamber of stuff we'll need if we ever leave the EU? Uh, I think you should stick in there someone that can take the EU's role as the cause of all of your problems, especially <laughs> the ones you cause yourself. <laughs> Scapegoat, in other words. A small yeah. furry animal that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, here's Keith Brown with our closing European language clip in German. Ich will nicht, dass der Brexit zu einem Ende kommt, weil es dann keine Remaniacs mehr geben wird. That means I don't want Brexit to end, because then there will be no more Romaniacs. Keith, du zerspaltest unser Herzen. Wir werden immer für dich da sein, genau wie in Friends. We need your European language clips. Record something short and moderately clean on your phone and send it to us at info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Dmitry Grozovinsky, thanks for coming on Romaniacs. Are you looking forward to an exciting summer of trade negotiation, if it ever starts? <laughs> if it ever starts. <laughs> <laughs> but when it does, you'll be there. Ah, oh, absolutely. That's good news. I'm reassured a little bit. Just On a which tiny side? bit. <laughs> well, the winning one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Now, pray silence for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a roll call of some of our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Gail Cooper. Nick Plum, Paul Jarowicki, Ian Hallard, Simon Edwards, Mark Ladden, Teresa Edinburgh, David Horby, and Graham Shaw, Christine Wilmhurst, Simon Kittle, and Mike 38%. Uh, hello from me to John Doolan, Andy Hill, Philip Chandless, Daniel Hunt, Kevin Alsop, Andrew Filippo, Megan Ellis, Jeremy Strange, may that is a fucking awesome name, Mike O'Shea, Barbara Ottman, Nick Booth, and Tim O'Donovan. And hello from me to Steve Pitney, Mike McCready, Brendan Davis, Imea Lynch, Victor Anderson, Faye Harmon, Helen Bryant, Kathy Ball, Simon Woolley, Katie Tiller, Phil Utley, and David Love. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Ross Taylor with Ian Dunt and Nina Schick. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Elsie Bath, and Tom Bullen at Air Edel Studios. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.